I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for 22 years. I gave up all that for the right or the privilege to have kids. And so my kids have only seen me sober. Hello, and welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Today, my guest is the actor Robert Patrick, who first gained fame as T-1000, the bad guy in Terminator 2. When I first saw the movie way back in 1991, I just remember thinking, man, that bad guy is handsome. More than 25 years later, he still is. Patrick has acted in countless films since T2. Currently, he appears on CBS's Scorpion. But that journey has left him with scars and bruises, and happily, a family. We get into how he channeled his own father in roles like Ray Cash, Johnny's dad in Walk the Line, how he spiraled into addiction after Terminator 2, and how he got clean to have kids. The man does not hold back. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. Hey there, hey there, hey there. Hello, Joshua. Hello, Joshua. I heard him for a second there. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you. Okay, great. Let's do this podcast interview. Anyway, I'm so happy to hear your voice. I'm so happy you can hear mine. I can hear you loud and clear now. Hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. It's, it's a gravelly thing of wonder, your voice. <laughs> so the way that I'd love to do this podcast in and this interview is I'm going to start off with a series of questions that we ask all of our guests, all of our guests who are fathers. And since all of our guests are fathers, all of our guests, it starts off really basic and then it gets a little more nitty gritty about being a dad. How old are your children? 20, my daughter, the oldest, my son, 17. And what are their names? My daughter is Austin Jessica Patrick, and my son is Samuel Robert James Patrick. My daughter is named after my character in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. No shit. Yeah, the name tag is Austin on that guy. (laughs) I wasn't sure if I was going to have more than one kid, but uh, we thought it was a great name for her. If you knew you were going to have a son... After, would you have waited for Austin to name your son Austin? Uh, no, because the name of my son was predetermined. He had to be a Samuel and he had to be a Robert. How did he have to be a Samuel? Because the Patricks have been in America since before it was an America. And there has always been a Robert Patrick and there has always been a Samuel Patrick. So it was my duty to name my son either one of the two names, and uh, I chose to give them both. So being a Southerner myself, too, so I can call him Sammy Bob Jimmy Patrick. (laughs) What do they call you? They used to call me when I was a kid. Of course, I was Little Bobby because my dad was Bobby, and uh, I was Little Bobby. And then uh, I requested when I was 13 to be called Robert. And did they abide by that? They did. I still have some people in my family that call me Little Bobby, I still have some people that call me Bobby. I have some people that annoyingly call me Rob. The question was actually, what do your kids call you? Oh, it's what do my kids call me? My daughter calls me dad and my son calls me Pops. Pops? Yep. It's a dream. It's so fun to have him call me Pops. Okay, Pops. How often do you see them? Well, my son still lives at home and my daughter is living in Brooklyn right now doing an internship with a uh, a digital media company the only kind of media that exists describe yourself as a father in three words oh boy wow ooh boy wow 
<laughs> oh boy, wow. Those are the first ones. Okay, that's it. Uh, I don't know how to describe myself as a father. I think I'm a loving dad. Pretty straightforward. Uh, pretty easy going. I think that's pretty good. You get a lot of syllables, but only three words. Wise choice. Thank you. Describe your father in three words. Stern, demanding, prideful. Prideful in what sense? Very worried about what people thought of him. Yeah. Very concerned with the impression he made on other people and the respect or lack of that he got. You grew up, or you were born in Marietta, grew up in outside of Cleveland, is that right? The first 10 years of my life was uh, Marietta, Georgia. But then we moved to Boston, Needham, Massachusetts for one year. My dad got his master's from MIT. We returned after that year to Georgia, Atlanta, same place, Marietta. And then we moved to Kettering, Ohio, outside of Dayton for three or four years. And then I went to high school outside of Detroit in a place called Farmington, Michigan, and graduated high school there. And my senior year, my father moved to Cleveland, Ohio, Bay Village, Ohio. And um, I ended up moving to Cleveland after high school. How come you bounced around so much? My father was uh, in the aerospace industry, uh, Lockheed Aircraft Corporation in finance. And when he got his master's from MIT, it was in management, but uh, he went back to work for Lockheed Aircraft. The Vietnam War was going on and they had just developed a C-5A and my father predicted that it was bankrupt a company and he wasn't so sure he wanted to stay with them. So he made a switch and went into the banking industry, started at uh, Winters Bank in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And then after a few years, got a better job in Detroit and moved there. And then after a year or two there, he realized he'd made a mistake and then found another bank that he wanted to go to in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And that's where he ended his career. He retired at the age I'm at now. You're just getting started. Yeah, exactly. That's the way I see it. I'm, uh, I'm the same age he was when he retired with five kids. You're the oldest of the five, right? Yes, that's correct. And your brother's a musician, rivals you in fame. Yeah, well, he is a very famous. He's a very, very talented musician. He's 10 years younger than me, so he's 49. Is he one of the youngest ones? Was that the spread of the Patrick children? Yes, 10 years. They were twins. His uh, sister is a fraternal twin. For some reason, I imagine the Patrick childhood as like a pretty rough and tumble with the kids and fighting and raising hell. Is that true or is that just something I'm making up based on your professional oeuvre? Uh, I would say that was true. <laughs> the reviews are mixed on me as a big brother. <laughs> I was uh, maybe a tormentor and a protector all in one. We moved around a lot, so we were a pretty close-knit family. I, I, you know, I had a lot of friends, so I was pretty rowdy. I seemed to be a protector of my, uh, my middle brother. And then when the twins came along, I think I was 10, so they were interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You said your dad was stern. How did that sternness, and how did, interestingly, how did the pridefulness express itself to you? How did you experience that as a kid? Well, he was very serious and took himself serious and um, he had high expectations of all of us. And there was a certain amount of pressure, I think. And as we moved around, you know, uh, there were certain things he expected us to be and do, certain uh, pressures he put on himself. In hindsight now, you know, my, my father was the son of a colonel 
in the United States Army, a, a career soldier. Was he a Robert or a Samuel? He is Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Patrick. Okay. And uh, my dad is Robert Merle Patrick. M-E-R-L-E? M-E-R-L-E, yes. And he, like, uh, he passed away three years ago, December 9th. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. One of the roles that you played that sticks with me is in Walk the Line, you play uh, Johnny Cash's dad. It's a good who, father figure right there. Yeah, he's a real tough son of a gun. He's a prick. I guess we could say that. <laughs> but he really embodied a figure who was very hard on his son. You know, I think the interesting thing and the main reason I'm doing this podcast is because I think this whole take of fatherhood yeah. is a dynamic that uh, is so huge in my own life. I know my relationship with my father, my father's relationship with his father and then to actually get roles where you're playing these fathers of some famous people like Johnny Cash and realize and read about, you know, Johnny Cash's relationship with his father from his point of view of what his dad was like. And then you realize that's what kind of forges you as an individual is your relationship with your dad. And how important it is. The father-son dynamic, you know, all the way back to the Bible, it's a huge formative relationship. Yeah, if only I could have had uh, Isaac on the podcast and ask him about Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the whole Johnny Cash experience playing Ray Cash was really intriguing to me. I am from the South. I was born in 1958. Uh, a lot of the fathers that I looked up to over the years I've stolen from in the you know for some of the portrayals I've played the men that had made a big impression on me when I was a kid growing up your dad included my dad included and I think the Ray Cash uh let's see how do I get into this when I got the opportunity to play him I started reading his autobiography and there was a lot of things that came through Johnny Cash's dad was not a real educated man he was a, a, a sharecropper. He was trying to get his family through the Great Depression. They were picking cotton. His kids were like farm implements. Yeah. He had seven of them. They were expected to work. As, as a matter of fact, it was more important for them to work than it was to go to school. And it was just the times, you know, and it was what was expected. So I'm sure he was a, a very demanding guy. You know, Johnny sort of said that in his autobiography. The tell for me with Johnny with the relationship with his father was the fact that he had the respect to bury his dad, but he never went back to his grave to visit again. Yeah. And I think that sort of summed it all up. He had a real dynamic thing happen to him, losing his older brother, the brother that was most loved, and the father sort of blamed him. And I think that darkness sort of permeated um, the career of Johnny Cash and he drew on that and that was actually the source of his talent and uh, and his pain and his fame yeah was that darkness towards the end of his life he did that cover of the Bonnie Prince Billy song I see a darkness yeah yeah Which, boy you're good man I'm a I I'm a Cash and Bonnie Prince Billy fan and father fan so. but it, you know it's really really interesting um, when I did that movie you know the the grandchildren of the Cash family came out and said and a few of them said that you know I don't remember my grandfather being that big of a prick and my response was yeah but this was not your point of view this was Johnny's point of view the Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars, even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. 
Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with cheese dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy however you wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you. And now back to the show. What of your um, roles do you think really embody most your father and what of the roles that you've played if any embody how you are as a father i think maybe the father i played in bridge to terabithia was a great role for me that was closer to how i think i am as far as a father he was pretty loving guy kind of hard-working dude blue-collar guy that really tried to understand his children and what they were going through and wanted to be there for them emotionally. I thought he was a good dad. And that's a good movie. I'm really proud of that movie. Uh, recently, I've produced a movie where I starred in it. And it was, again, it's this great dynamic of fathers and sons in an evil way called Last Rampage, where I play a, a convicted murderer who utilizes his three sons to escape from prison. and uses the father-son dynamic to his advantage to get himself out of prison and doesn't really give a shit about his kids. Uh, it's funny. Around the office, we've been talking about, you know, obviously there's a prominent father-son dynamic which is playing out nationally right now with the president and his son. A dynamic of a father using or leveraging the father-son dynamic for nefarious ends is one of the most troubling, I think, and unsettling dynamics. You know, you touched on something that's very interesting. There's an expectation, and I think, uh, I know personally as a father, I've tried to take all that off my son. The only thing I've wanted my son to do, uh, I want him to be true to himself and find his way himself, but I want to give him all the tools that I can to go about doing that. And I feel a a real responsibility uh, as a father to give him the best education he can get and try not to make the same mistakes my father did. But what's interesting about you, you know, out of five, I know that you, you know, you and your youngest brother, um, you're an actor and he's a musician. I don't know what the, the other three siblings do, but someone was encouraging, maybe, I don't know. Did you get encouragement from your parents to kind of pursue your own truth? Well, my dad, you know, my parents made me feel very, very special. I did feel special, not only my parents, but my uncles and aunts, because I was the firstborn grandson to this mythical figure of the colonel, Samuel Patrick. And I was the only grandson that he ever saw alive. He died by the time I was five, I believe. I think early on, looking back on it, I feel like I had this responsibility to do something extraordinary. Whatever it was, it was sort of expected of me. Now, that manifested itself in me failing at some things before I I pursued this career, but I've been successful at this career. Now, I don't want to say I have an expectation for my children, but I do want to try to provide them every opportunity they have to be exceptional in their own right. Does that make sense? What I Yeah, you want them to measure uh, against themselves. You're not trying to put an external guidepost on them, but you're saying, however you want to measure what you do, be excellent at that metric. I don't want to come across as like a delusional person that uh, I have always felt like there was a motor running in me that there, I've got to do something that's not normal. Yeah. 
Why? I don't know. It's a tangible thing, feeling that I have, that I'm I'm being watched to do that. There's something in me that that's pushing me. Is it the lieutenant colonel from the great beyond? Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. Is it? Is it? Is, or if you want to really strip it down to, you know, I'm a believer, so you know, I believe God puts you here, and he, you're, it's your obligation to find your talent, what it is, and then go out there and, and utilize it to the fullest. That's the best way you honor. God, that's what you're supposed to do. In a weird way, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what it is. What was the lowest you feel like you got before you started making it? Well, I struggled for a long time, and I'm going to be real honest with you because if the young people that are listening to this, you know, I failed at some stuff miserably. Like what? Well, well, I, I went off to college, and I was there to play football. You know, my dad loved the fact that I was a, a football player. My dad loved the fact that I played baseball. You know, he really encouraged me that way. And then when I kind of realized that uh, football is not going to go anywhere past college, I don't really know why I'm doing it. As a matter of fact, I don't even know why I'm at college. Who the hell am I? And then I was lost and miserable. And, uh, you know, all this stuff that was expected of me, is now gone. Now what do I do? I remember you know, literally praying for what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? What the hell am I supposed to be doing? I got to find it. I got to find some sort of direction. And I, you know, I did some stupid stuff. I tried some stupid stuff. What was the stupidest thing? What was the stupid? Well, you know, you get involved with some, you abuse some things you shouldn't be doing. You, there's a lot of self-hatred for not fulfilling the expectations you have on yourself. So you take it out on yourself. But, you know, I had to fail. I failed at a bunch of stuff. I tried a bunch of stuff. I painted houses. I worked in factories. I bartended. And none of it was fulfilling that need to do something great. And then finally it dawned on me that what I really like to do was act. I hadn't done it since I was in third grade. But how now how the hell do you do that? I'm, I'm like, I'm 21, 22-year-old guy. I've sat in a drama class. How the hell do I approach this? How do I make this happen? I live in Cleveland, Ohio, for God's sakes. How did you make it happen? That's what I'm saying, brother. <laughs> I had a life or death experience that really slapped me in the face and said, you better get on with it if that's what you want to do. That was um, that was I've... a boating accident. And all this was going on. And I was trying to figure out what the hell, what the hell, what the hell. I read a line about that. So you have a Wikipedia page because you're famous and everyone also has a Wikipedia page. Everybody has a Wikipedia page. I don't. I considered briefly writing it myself, but then I thought I need some dignity in my life, so I didn't. You know, I want to meet you. I like you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I wish we were in the same room here. Me too. I wish I was in L.A. because it's fucking freezing here. But it's, a, it, it's something like, you know, when you were 26, there was a boating accident in Lake Erie. And after that, you moved to California. And it feels like there's a whole novel written that one Wikipedia sentence. So tell me what happened then. Well, okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm living in Cleveland. I've gone to high school in Detroit. Like I said, I'm failing miserably at things. My father has now taken to calling me Bob the Slob. I live in the basement. I'm drinking a lot. I'm not really living up to my potential. I'm now waiting tables and I want to be an actor. I don't know how to tell people I want to be an actor. I don't, there's nobody I know that's an actor. I figure, you know, eventually I'll do it. I meet this girl. I put it off more. I find another reason to put it off was with this girl. Finally, the girl breaks up with me. I'm in this boating accident. I, I swim for three and a half hours. I saved myself and four other people. Was the boat uh, sinking? It was a 30-foot dragon slayer that was not prepped 
for a Lake Erie storm that hit. It had a four-ton keel, took in water. It was a wet deck. The next thing they know that, that we're three miles off, the boat takes in water, the boat sinks in like a second. And there you are in the middle of Lake Erie, three miles off the coast of Cleveland, uh, swimming for your life. And it's right there that you literally, you know, uh, if I survive this, I am going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to make something of myself. And yeah. I swam and I set a date and I packed my bags. And I remember my parents, I remember the only time I ever saw my dad literally, you know, kind of tear up was when I said goodbye to him. And I know what it was because he, he couldn't help me. I was moving to California. I was going to get, try to pursue this business that I had no experience in and there was nothing he could do. And he was saying goodbye to his oldest son. You know, it was a, it was a tough experience for him. Do you think he was proud of you? Yes. Heading out there. He, well, I think he was more scared. There was a certain amount of fear that I grew up with in my family. Uh, there was right. a certain amount of worry that kids that had survived the uh, great depression that were parents, you know, save your money. You know, they're always worried about there was a, the other shoe was going to drop all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fear was very prevalent in my house. They were always like reasons why I shouldn't do it. I can't say that I had the full backing of my family when I did it. I think they thought I was crazy. But they um, were pretty damn proud of me when they were at the Terminator 2 premiere. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. And they, they saw all that and they were going, holy, how the hell did you do this? I had no idea he was made out of liquid metal. I, I didn't know he knew how to act. Hell, I remember my father meeting uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. <laughs> my dad said to Arnold, so do you think my son's going to make it? <laughs> I just sat there going like, seriously? What did Arnold Schwarzenegger say? Your son has the work ethic. He is going to be a fantastic. He's fantastic in this film. You should be very proud of your son, what he's done. If Arnold Schwarzenegger says it, I'll take it. Yeah, it was really good. I don't mean to get so uh, nostalgic here with all this kind of stuff. You know, you mentioned why you wanted to do this podcast because the dynamic between a father and a son is like when you walk by cement and someone's written their initials in it or someone's put their hand in the cement and forevermore that outline will be there. Mm -hmm. So many of the guys I talk to on the podcast, they're fathers themselves, but we end up talking a lot about their relationship with their father because it is such a huge formational relationship these experiences are so meaningful. When I look at your career, yeah, you're known as like a heavy, but you're also sort of known as this authority figure. You are in some ways like the stern father of American cinema. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's a great compliment. Where I fit right now, it's interesting. Uh, the age I'm at and the responsibility I feel to portray that ideal, and I've been given that opportunity, this sounds like a segue, but I've been given that opportunity on Scorpion each week. It's an interesting uh, paternal relationship with the cast that I have. I grew up where you needed to be counted on. You, you, um, how do I word this? You, you were the, you were the salt of the earth. You, 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 you knew what was right and what was wrong. Uh, you could be depended on. And I think that's translated to me as a father. My wife and I have been married for 27 years. Barbara. Yes, and I'm very lucky that I found an exceptional woman at the right time in my life. You were in L.A. Yeah, I was in L.A., and I've got these two great children. 
and they've got a wonderful mother and uh, she's committed to uh, supporting me uh, emotionally and uh, uh, giving me uh, a belief in myself. We feel like we have a real commitment to our kids. Did you wait until you were successful? Were you ready to have kids at that time? Well, that's a story in itself. Let me see if I can tap into this real quick. Barbara and I got married in 1985. We got married while I was making T2. So she had been with me through all the struggling years. Uh, well, we couldn't scrap two pennies together. So she shared and has been a big part of my success. And it's somewhere around 38 years old, 36 years old, I kind of hit her with the idea of let's have some kids. And she was like, man, I don't know. You, you got some recreational things going on that you're going to have to get rid of before we uh, seriously think about having some kids. So I got sober. Had you been drinking a lot before then? Yeah, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for 22 years. I gave up all that for the right or the privilege to have kids. It was a very smart move on my wife's part. And so my kids have only seen me sober. Yeah. They know that uh, I took care of my own self and uh, gave all that up so I could have them. So I don't want to say it was a sacrifice made. It was a good decision what I did, and it wasn't a sacrifice. It was a, a real attempt to be there for them from, from the, from the get-go. And, and, you know, I think that's what's so important in our society right now, that dads have a real responsibility, and the family unit is something to be honored. And uh, getting married and having a job and having kids is a great value. A lot of my guests, especially actors, but other people as well, they have a starter family almost while they're trying to make it. And then they get success. And maybe through how hard they worked and how much they sacrificed for their career, their family falls apart. And then they become successful. And then they have another family. So you have like two sets of kids. You have the first one and the second one. And it's really interesting to me that you in Hollywood, which seems like a town where there's a lot of that, you've been with your wife for so long and you have kids and you have this real strong family unit, which seems not impervious to that pressure, but has survived. Yeah, we've been lucky. I'm just eternally grateful for that. I don't like to judge. Try, well, what am I saying? I'm kidding myself. That's probably my worst thing that I do do is judge people, but I don't want to admit to it, <laughs> but I do. I, that's the thing that I revere the most is my wife and my family. I don't want to sacrifice my wife and my family for my own pursuit. However, I am still very driven and committed to what I want to do, but I think you can have both personally. I think uh, there's ways to do it. Uh, you said you're a recovering alcoholic and you have two kids who are 17 and 20, presumably experimenting like all kids do. How do you handle that? Because obviously you've seen the dangers of going too far, but as any dad knows, if you yank the chain too hard, they're only going to pull harder. So how have you navigated that? I've been very honest with them from the get-go. I've started talking to them openly about it. This is this. This is what this does. This is how it happens. I've had a problem with it. Doesn't mean you're going to have a problem with it. You may experiment with this stuff, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you go down this road and you tried this, you're really headed in the wrong direction. I'm uh, very scared of heroin. That's not something I ever tried myself, thankfully. You know, I just want to let them know that there are certain gateways, and you may not think this is much now, but it, it could lead to something. So you got to be very honest with yourself. You're going to be around this kind of stuff. But they've also, my kids, since I've been honest with them from the get-go, 
they don't really have an interest in it. They know a bunch of my uh, sober buddies. They know a bunch of my buddies that have had problems. They've heard from my buddies that have had problems. And they kind of get the idea that it's not a winning situation. Yeah. So they have a respect for it and uh, an awareness. You know, it's just like the gun issue. All right. I'm going to bring that up. If you don't acknowledge what it is and the tool that it is and you don't explain it and give out the information, they're never going to know. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you saying that families should have guns but teach gun safety or are you saying? I said if you have a family and you have a family that has weapons or you have children and you have children that are going to be in the society where weapons exist, they need to be educated. Yeah. It's the same thing to me in an interesting way. It's like, I'm going to hand my kid the keys of the car, okay? You're going to drive this car. This car is a weapon if you don't handle it correctly. You can injure yourself. You can injure other people. If you drive it impaired, if you drive it texting, okay, you're going to have a big problem. It's the same thing. These dangers are out there. You need to be aware of it. Yeah. Well, not mentioning it is not protecting them. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And thank you, Joshua, for bailing me out of that. <laughs> But, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. I think kids appreciate honesty. Me and my wife, uh, we've decided, you know, we'll be very honest with you. This is this, and these are the repercussions. I have some more questions from the questionnaire, which actually kind of feed quite well into this. What are your strengths as a father? I think maybe being honest. Yeah. And frank. And your weaknesses? Ah, uh, my weaknesses. Wow, that's funny how that doesn't pop into my head right away. I can worry a little bit. And I have to watch that when they come to me with something that I don't fall into the environment that I was raised in where I would be overly worried. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, that's good. Your biggest regret? My biggest regret as a father, the time I've spent away from my kids. Being away at movies and the times I missed when they were kids, when I was on location. There was no other way to do it. I, I didn't want my kids to be pulled up and moved around like a bag of gypsies like I was. I wanted them to have a strong foundation. This is where you're born. This is where you go to school. This is your community. You live in Hollywood. This is you. This is your environment where you're from. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? I'm wearing it right now. My dad gave me a Rolex G Master II. What heirloom do you want to leave to your children, if any? Uh, let me think about that. Hmm. Well, I guess I'll pass this watch on to my son. I've already given him the two names, so that counts. <laughs> Yep. Who has that name tag from Terminator 2? Not me. <laughs> I wish I did. I don't know what happened to it. It's on probably in some hard rock <laughs> on the wall in Hollywood somewhere, Joshua. What is your favorite activity to do with your kids? That is your special dad and son or dad and daughter thing. We like to go hiking with the dogs. We like to uh, play football. We like to throw the baseball around. We like to, my son and I, we, we like to go do some skeet shooting from time to time. My daughter... <laughs> Most of the time I'm with her, it's like walking and hiking. We seem to have our best times doing that. Where do you guys like to hike? There's a lot of great places to hike here in the Hollywood Hills. In Hollywood, okay. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, Joshua, I'm going to the Rams game tonight. Oh. And I got to take my son. And that's my father and son time with my son today. What is a mistake you made growing up you want to ensure your children do not repeat? I wish I would have taken school a little bit more serious. Yeah. When I had the opportunity, because that's all on me. But I was going through some emotional stuff at the time and uh, just didn't handle it well. But I've already done that. I've served, my, my daughter's going to be the first one in my family to graduate from college. That's great. And my son will be the second one. 
in my family, not my father's family, but my family. My my <laughs> wife and I, neither one of us graduated college. You dropped out, but and you've been working since then. Do you feel like you're learning? I don't know through life, uh, like how you're learning the whole time, right? Yeah, my life is different than my father's, which I think ultimately is what I wanted. And I'm a little bit more street smart and knock around. My dad was more of a white collar guy. I'm a, I sort of straddle that white collar, blue collar world. And I'm yeah. pretty comfortable there. And as an actor, it's benefited me greatly. And what about your son? He's so much more talented than me that, uh, you know, he's a vocalist, he sings, he does musical theater, and he's an actor. I mean, this guy's got so much talent. And my daughter does too. So, um, you know, they've, they're already better than me. And now they've just got to go out and prove it. Last question. Besides telling your kids that you love them, how do you let them know that? Well, I'm a big hugger. I'm, <laughs> I'm a very affectionate guy. And uh, I've got great kids. I would really wish you would get a chance to meet my kids sometime. Well, someday, Robert Patrick, I hope to get a Robert Patrick hug. But for now, enjoy the football game with your son, and thank you for uh, being a guest. Joshua, it has been a great pleasure, and I look forward to meeting you someday. It shall be so. Farewell. This is Joshua David Stein, host of the Fatherly Podcast. I'm here with Josh Krish, our science editor. It's funny, you sound like Robert Patrick. Yes, you might hear that I have a lower, more gravelly voice, and instantly I'm more attractive and have more authority. Uh, I'm not, and I don't, but I did just talk to Robert Patrick, who among the many things I like about him, which is almost everything, is his voice, which I could listen to forever and in many movies have. So you want to know the secret of dad voice I according want to, to see- science? Give me the secret of dad voice so I can get it. Well, you hit on the main findings already. That is, lower-pitched voices, according to virtually every scientific study on the topic, are rated more attractive. The person who has them is considered physically stronger, considered more dominant. Yes. All the things you'd like to be as a dad. That was very good. Yes, Josh. Yeah, my, my squeaky Let's voice doesn't yours. really... Can we uh, hear your... Um, my low register dad voice? Oh, man. Do I sound attractive? You sound and look like Moses. <laughs> <laughs> a beard reference every episode. <laughs> Mandatory. One very interesting study examined recordings of every presidential debate between 1960 and 2000 and found that the candidate with the deeper voice won a higher percentage of the popular vote almost every time. So it's not just that we find these people more attractive or stronger or more dominant. We actively seem to be voting for them as we put people in office who have deeper voices. There was another study that looked at the 212 United States House of Representative candidates and found that those with lower voices won a larger vote share even after they controlled for things that you would hope would swing elections like um, campaign spending, district ideology, incumbency. They controlled for all of that. And the only major variable between candidates was how low their voices were. So we'll never have a female president? No, we could have a female president. She would just have to have a relatively low register voice. Studies show that in general, we are more critical of women with high voices than men with high voices. Oh, interesting. So a particularly high voiced woman is going to have trouble making it in public office. Remember when Jared Kushner gave that press conference and he sounded like an 11 year old castrato? Yeah. That did not was, go over well. <laughs> didn't, didn't increase my perception of his leadership abilities. Uh, Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, has an incredibly low register voice. Yes. 
millionaires and billionaires. Hillary Clinton had a relatively low voice. Donald Trump has a fairly high register voice, but also he lost the popular vote. And the studies always show popular vote, not electoral college. The three million that he lost could have been because of his high register voice, according to these studies. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had very similar pitches when we analyzed the pitch that they used during their debates. I believe Hillary Clinton's was 188 hertz and Donald Trump averaged 189 hertz. So the final two candidates were both higher than the average. 130 hertz. What is the average register for a voice? The low end is like 81 hertz. When you hear like James Earl Jones, you're like an 80. Yeah, that's quite low. And 136 is like a high-pitched male voice. Not a very high-pitched male voice, but a little higher than average. They say Sean Connery's around there. So if you can picture Sean Connery's voice, is not terribly low, but not terribly high. I always thought he had a deep, gravelly voice, but I guess that leads to the point that gravelly and register, quality and register are two different things. Right. These studies specifically look at the average hertz. So that's the average um, frequency. It's not about how much they smoked. It's about how deep their voices register. Mm-hmm. Ted Cruz had like 232 hertz. He's like a, he's like a squeaky little mouse. Mm. Men don't usually go a lot higher than 200 or a lot lower than 80. And women also operate pretty much in that register. It's just that women tend to skew closer to the higher ones and men tend to skew closer to the lower ones. So your range is like 80 to 200. So why are we attracted to male voices? Why do we think that dad voice is the ideal? There are a few possibilities. One possibility is that lower voices indicate higher levels of testosterone. Pretty straightforward. We're wired to see testosterone as a sign of competence and strength, even if it's not. It goes back to our cavemen brains. Our primitive minds consider somebody with a deep voice most likely to win wars and club people over the head. So it's useful to have a leader like that. A lot of scientists don't love this theory, though, because in the modern day, our leaders are not in charge of clubbing mammoths and fighting wars for us. They kind of sit behind a desk while other people do that work for them. So you would think we would have evolved out of that. But if you talk to an evolutionary biologist or an evolutionary psychologist, they'll probably tell you that it's so deeply ingrained into our personas that we want a leader who could kill somebody with his bare hands. Even if they're tiny, tiny hands? Even if they have tiny, tiny hands. You know, that brings to mind a recent study we covered on Fatherly, that Americans for the first time prefer daughters instead of sons. And I wonder if down the line that's going to result in privileging higher registered voices rather than lower. Maybe. There are other studies that suggest that we're always going to privilege lower voices for other reasons. There are at least two studies that blinded people completely. Well, I shouldn't say blinded people completely. I can picture them eyes poking out. There were, <laughs> there were at least two studies that just had people listen to voices. And in the voice, the person would say something like, vote for me this coming November or trust me. And when their voices were lower, they did what the voice said to do. When the voice were higher, they did not. And when asked why, the participants invariably responded that the lower register voice sounds more trustworthy and sounds more competent. And I want to do what a trustworthy, competent person says to do rather than a shrill, incompetent person. Are there any studies or is there any science that can catch respondents before they've been indoctrinated into a patriarchal heteronormative society? It'd be difficult because a lot of these biases started a few months and you can't really get a five-month-old or a six-month-old to answer survey questions like this. The indoctrination happens early. I guess you'd have to find participants from a society that's not patriarchal. Those exist, but they're few and far between nowadays. What's Wonder Woman's land called? Sure. Run a study in a fictional universe that Wonder Woman comes from. Yeah, it'll be easy. I'm sure they have more funding for the (laughs) National Institute of Sciences. I'm guessing they fund basic science better than we do. There's another thought you had as to why we are attracted to dad voice. Yeah, this one just seems the most compelling to me. It also seems the most compelling to the researchers looking at this question. Perception of age has a lot to do with how you pick a leader. 
Studies have shown that if different leaders are put up on a board and participants are told nothing about them besides their ages and few basic stats, they will pick the older ones unless they're incredibly old, unless it's like 100 years old. So you don't want somebody frail and about to die. But generally speaking, we want older people to lead us. We consider older people more competent and older people have deeper voices. As we get older... The physiology of the vocal tract and the larynx ensures that when you start out young, you're going to have a higher voice than when you get a little bit older. So uh, voice pitch is a reliable signal of age because it decreases greatly from childhood to middle age and then decreases much less after middle age. So you get this kind of very high-pitched voice when you're dealing with a kid. That higher-pitched voice drops significantly lower when the child becomes a regular adult. We're wired to follow people who are older, which makes a lot of sense. We should follow people who are older, generally speaking. They're considered wiser. They have a little more experience. We want to follow people that are older, and one of the best indicators of age is voice. I think there's another possibility I just want to float, is that Robert Patrick has been active in Hollywood for so long in so many films, and he's such an attractive actor displays such breadth and depth in his character portrayals that we've grown to associate a deeper voice with Robert Patrick, and that's why we're attracted to deeper voices. You're telling me you think that Robert Patrick would make an excellent president. I'm saying Robert Patrick is the er-dad of America. (laughs) We should all vote for him. Vote for Robert Patrick. Okay. Well, Josh, thank you for that. It will make me self-conscious every time I talk. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to The Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Today's episode was executive produced by Sandy Smallins and engineered by Dave Savage. Theme music is by Kyle Forster, with a little help from my son, Augie Heerenstein. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a high five rating and subscribe on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for me. Hey, kids, got anything to say? Boo, 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 pee, pee. <laughs> but take the penis is being